Hello and welcome to this, the 36th episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And it's another special week for me, lads. Um, it's been an emotional ride and we are finally in the final week of uh, Tom Murphy's The House at the Abbey Theatre and it's just been such an exceptional ride to this point. We've had so much fun and it's such a lovely gang here and such a great play and obviously you know the critical response to the show has been lovely, the response from the audience has been great uh, and you know just playing to sold out crowds night after night after night is uh, is a real honour and a privilege and it, and it, and it feels great and uh, I have to say it's, um, it's one of those things a bit like the end of Philadelphia Here I Come, the Brian Friel play, I'm already kind of rolling that video camera of memory in my head every night for this final week going out there because you want to cherish these ones because shows like this uh, don't come around that often with with teams like this with a script like this with uh, everything coming together and gelling as it has done uh, these are the special ones these are the ones you have to cherish so it's it's been great and you're know, going out there if you like taking those curtain calls in front of sold out crowds uh, feels amazing um, and the response to the show has been great and it's one of those things that I remember Last time I was here, being out there and taking those curtain calls as well, and go and cherish this angle because you know you don't know when you'll next be back here, and uh, and you know signs on it. It was it was a good four years between my last run at the Abbey and, and getting back in this time. So uh, it's not something I ever ever take for granted. It's something I genuinely appreciate every day and being out there every night. Such an honour. Uh, the history of this place, obviously the family history of this place is great as well. It's uh, it's just so much fun. And we're having an obscene amount of fun on it. Uh, the dressing room is so much crack. It's myself, Declan Conlon, Carl Shields and Frank Laverty, all podcast alumni as it happens. Um, and the crack has just been 90. Obviously serious hard work as well, but the fun has been amazing. And, uh, you know, it's been a tiring old run between um, getting fight night over to Glasgow during the rehearsal process for the house and also been shooting this TV thing, the 1916 thing down in Galway during the playing of it. It's been a hectic few months. I've been, I've been burning the candles at both ends of it work-wise, but it's been such a joy to be doing it. It's been so much fun. Uh, this is one I will remember for long and many's a day to come. And also a nice little bit of news this week is that uh, from talking to Carl Shields, you know, his, his theatre upstairs venture over at Lanigan's is going so well for them. They're doing amazing business over there. But he told me the other night that uh, four of their upcoming shows that they've already programmed in have come directly as a result of the shout-out that we put here on the podcast for submissions, which is a remarkable return to think that, you know, of the first handful of shows, four of them will be as a direct result of, of people hearing about it through the podcast and going and submitting stuff. Um, and great to see the people out there with an idea for a show are getting the opportunity to go and put it on because so many of us are given out at the moment that space is inaccessible or we can't do it without Arts Council funding or we can't get the audiences or whatever. Here is a venue that Carl has set up with his team that is open to people and, you know, people are making submissions and getting in and getting work put on and getting the shows out there. Uh, it's a phenomenal thing that he's doing. I'm so excited for him and for the whole project. Uh, and so I guess it's, you know, to reiterate that call, if you have an idea out there for a show that you've been tinkering with for the last little while, if there's a little one-man show you've written but you don't know what to do with it, maybe submit it to them, get in touch with them. It's theatreupstairs at gmail.com. Um, you can also find them on Facebook and Twitter and whatever else, but get in touch with Carl, uh, submit it, see what the story is, and, you know, if he likes it, he'll back you 
you all the way and you'll get it on there. It's a, it's a remarkable opportunity there for people. I think it's a, a wonderful thing altogether. And uh, more power to them. I hope it goes great. And as ever, we are bringing you this podcast absolutely free of charge. We have promised that we'll never, ever charge for these podcasts. But as we say every week, we are still looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. The easiest way, of course, to go about doing that is just to go and buy yourself some tickets for whatever show that may be, whether it's a Rise Productions show or the House at the Abbey, that's fine too. But any show that's on around the country, go and put your money into Irish theatre. Put your money where your mouth is. Or else, I will give you a wedgie. Of course, if uh, ticket prices are a little bit out of your reach this week or this month, you can always go and look at one of the crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie, where donations start from as low as a fiver, and there are always great rewards. Go and help out a theatre company over there, or I will give you a wedgie. Um, Of course, there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. You can go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee, or by sharing the link as a Facebook post, or retweeting the link on Twitter. Go and do that, or I will give you a wedgie. Um, Go and subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes. Uh, Of course, if you're out and about, you can stream it from fightnight.ie, the Fight Night website. Um, Do go back and listen to all the other episodes, and if you can't, leave us a review over on iTunes, or simply click to rate us on their five-star rating system, or I will give you a wedgie. You can, of course, follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland, or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. So, look, that brings us to our guest this week, and there is no two ways about this. This is a massive one. Uh, It's huge. So huge is it that I don't feel properly equipped to introduce this man, uh, because he's that big. He also happens to be a mate of mine and a guy I've worked with a few times. And so, uh, in keeping this in the family, as I've occasionally done, as you know, I sometimes have hidden bonus tracks with my daughter, here is a a contribution from my kid brother, um, the brilliant Andy McAnally, to explain and introduce who this guest is and just how awesome he is. I'll hand it over. Here's Andy McAnally. Widely regarded as the younger, taller, better looking and funnier version of me, Andy McAnally, welcome to the podcast. Go on, let's get this out in the open. Who is our guest this week? Angus, our guest this week is the one and only Owen Rowe. It's an emotional time for us all, I know. Uh, And what do you refer to Owen Rowe as? Ronaldo. And can you tell the listeners to the podcast why you refer to him as Ronaldo? I'm not really that keen on the theatre, that mad about going to the theatre. Just the shows that I'm in? If even, maybe <laughs> six shows a year, handpicked, and I'm not mad about going. So when I do go, and he's in the shows, I just think he's unbelievable. He's just absolutely standout. He's the best thing in every show I've ever seen him in. In the way that Cristiano Ronaldo is the best footballer it's, in every when you team. you see him, he just stands out. So that's where the guy in our house came from, Ronaldo. Is it true that you very rarely come to see me do plays, and yet have brought your own mother out, out of your own pocket to go and see Owen Rowe do shows in the gate, for no reason other than the fact that you, he is your favourite actor above me. Absolutely true, 100%. <laughs> and you're proud of that, are you? Very much so. Ronaldo is the best in Dublin that I've seen anyway. Do you have a special message for him now? Welcome to the podcast. The wonderful Owen Rowe. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. This is an absolute honour for me. Not at all. I wasn't doing anything anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so you caught me at a good moment. Let us go back, as we do every week, okay. to the very beginning. Right. Why in the name of Jesus a uh, career in the theatre to begin with? Where did the spark come from for you? I don't know, a number of elements. I don't know, I've always put it down to the fact, one, maybe because I was an only child. We're very good liars. Okay. And I think, yes, one aspect. Another one was that uh, my mother brought me to the cinema every day. And I mean every day. The only day I'd never went to the cinema was Saturday. So I was watching actors, I was watching different worlds, and I walked out of the cinema saying, that's much better in there than it is out here. So I always wanted to sort of be part of a, a world where people were playing all the time. 
Um, and the first time I performed was about I was ten with a friend of mine called Pierce Mackay, and we were who both, I know well. Yeah, we were both in the Boy Scouts. We were campfire leaders, right? So we used to be kind of the entertainment officers for the campfire things. So we kind of got in in like kind of literally the ground level. I mean, the muddy ground level in campsites. And then uh, we performed it, as I say, we were 10, I was at a parish show in the Mansion House with 500 people. And we did a sketch called The Daisy Market, which was written by a guy called Cecil Sheridan. Ah, right. And as kids, you rehearse months, months, months. And then the night before we went on, Cecil Sheridan came in and redirected the whole thing. And uh, it was a bit of an experience, but it was great to see him because I'd seen him in Pantos. I'd yeah, seen I mean, him did you know who Cecil Sheridan was? Oh yeah, I'd seen him in, in Pantos and, yeah. and as a kid. And you'd never have to tell you when you're up. So it was that kind of thing. He was one of these old school sort of variety music hall artists. Yeah. You know, so we did this and I went down and we got laughs for a full 20 minutes. And I thought, this is for me at the age of 10. <laughs> and then my mother insisted that I studied to be an architect and all the rest. And thank God I didn't because be no house in Ireland safe if I was designing. <laughs> so from that was kind of one of those things I thought this is what I want to do. And it wasn't in my family, there was no history of, 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 of theatre. My father was a truck driver and my mother worked in Jacob's Biscuit Factory so they were very much blue collar people and theatre was something you didn't go into unless there was something suspect about you. Now, unless, right. You know, you probably wanted by the police or something. I don't know. But, it was, but I did at the AI, I, was, I went into different jobs I worked at. When I came out of school, I wasn't that qualified for anything, I didn't feel I was, so I went into working in warehouses, uh, I worked in advertising as a freelancer for a while, but while I was working, I was part of French companies, I was also going to an acting school at weekends and um, learning craft through doing, uh, on every Saturday, every Sunday was, was me going and learning pieces and working with people from the business, right. who are still going, we're professionals who are our teachers. Uh, like Alan Stanford was a teacher, there was a, a Kevin McHugh was a teacher, um, um, David Byrne was a terrific uh, actor and terrific, even a terrific director, yeah. we don't see he's not, he's not doing it anymore unfortunately, but uh, people like that, and Chloe Gibson was uh, one, of the, one of the best teachers anybody could ask for, she was a great woman at teaching Shakespeare, and she gave a great love of language, and uh, Chloe was a chain smoker. She literally had a little hole in her mouth where a cigarette would hang. She was about 86, this woman. Okay. And she had one lung and one kidney. And <laughs> she said, dear, dear. More than enough for any Christian. She said, I'm firing on one cylinder, you know. Only firing on one cylinder. And she'd say things like, today we're going to do uh, Willie and Dilly. That was William Shakespeare and Dylan Thomas. Okay. So but she was a very eccentric woman. She's actually mentioned in Dirk Bogart's uh, biographies. As well. she, she worked with him for a while in terms of getting training him. Wow. So I a great, uh, great uh, crew of people who were just fantastic teachers. And out of that came a theatre company called Reckless. We formed a theatre company because one thing about schools is that, you know, you, you, whether you become uh, straight away into the big house or not, it doesn't matter. You have, you're all together, you're all focused, you all have one interest. So we formed this theatre company, did three productions, the company folded. And then I wasn't working very much, so I tried, had a go at stand-up, not to be a stand-up comedian, but just to, to try and keep performing. What, uh, is, how, what, what is the difference between going out there as Owen Road, the actor playing a part, mm. and going out there as Owen Road, the stand-up? Is it terrifying? About three more visits to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main difference. It's far more nerve-wracking uh, to, be, to be a stand-up. And I, 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 the, the first 10, 12 times were awful. And I, I mean, any time I remember them now, I just want to 
shrink into the toe cap of my shoe. I just was terrible. But you crack it. And I, I did what I used to go out with material, written material. And it wasn't so good. But then I stopped doing that. I went out with a few hand, uh, handful of ideas and worked with the audience. And that was much better. Wow. I enjoyed that. But it became, and after a while, you had to keep up because there was a regular audience going and you, you mightn't get on the stage till about 12, 30 at night or whatever, and they're all drunk. And after a while, I said, no, I can't do this anymore. And also, if you had a bad night, you never slept. Yeah, okay. And if you had a great night, you really never slept because you just thought how wonderful you are yeah. and you're buzzing like hell. But, but it was very good, and it's, I recommend anybody who, who, who wants to be an actor to try out the handed variety or stand up because. It, it 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 helps you with it, overcoming any fear of an audience. If I go, if an audience is anyway hostile, or if there's a heckler even at a play, would you get them? It doesn't bother me. In fact, I get a little giddy actually. It makes me want to go on and just enjoy it. You know, but it, so it's it's something that it's worth doing. Yeah. Because it gives you that little bit more muscle, mental muscle, when you're going out to perform a play. And in terms of when you say going out and not necessarily the scripted stuff as stand up, but the the more improv stuff and, yeah. and dealing with an audience. Mm. Obviously, it's a little bit different, but learning how to how to surf that audience wave like that must be hugely beneficial Absolutely. for what you do now. Absolutely, bang on, because what happens when you go out, uh, one thing I hate, I hate when I'm doing a show, and at the intermission, some actor or worker comes back and says, oh, they're terrible, I give up, to hell with that, I'm not gonna do anything. But no, 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 you're wrong. Your job is to work the audience. They didn't come here to hate you. Yeah. They came here to be entertained, and if you didn't get them, then you have to keep working at it until you get them. If you say, if you give up on an audience, you shouldn't be doing it. And that's one thing about doing stand-up. You're letting yourself down. That's yeah. what, but stand-up is that you, you go out there and you work an audience, and you're listening to the audience, and you know if they're, if they're not getting it, and you know if they're with you. It, it's a little instinct that you just you, you, you find that's there, and you develop, and you sharpen that sense up, and it's invaluable when you're doing anything from Shakespeare to farce. Yeah. It's a really interesting one because it's one that obviously me and my fetish for pro wrestling that they they have that okay. same. Okay, <laughs> this is all very new to me. <laughs> well, it's that thing that they they have that thing of, of, of it's, it's storytelling for an audience like that. Yeah. And and because it's it's effectively contact improv, dance improv that they're calling it on the moment. Yes. And yeah. that you're riding that wave of the audience going. In fact, they can take a bit more of this, or we need to switch them and pull the rug out from one of them, or whatever. Yeah. But yeah. it's interesting then, like obviously that's it in its broader sense. But refining that down for you know a monologue and da is obviously a different thing. Well, but it is, and yet it isn't. I mean. If, if, even if you're doing Faith Healer, I mean, the one yeah. we wanted to do Faith Healer here with, um, we did uh, two different directors with Robin Refeb, and it went to, to Australia and it went to, um, I was in Australia with Robin and, and here at the, gate, at the gate, and it was very successful. And then um, Michael, when we were going to us, uh, we went to Edinburgh rather, and he took over and redirected it. And I suggest, made a few suggestions where the house lights were left on. So I could see the audience because I thought, well, you know, Frank, Frank Harding in Faith Healer, he's a Faith Healer. He works with an audience. He talks to an audience. So for me, I felt I could do that because it didn't bother me that I could see the, the bored expressions or the elated expressions <laughs> or whatever the hell was going on in their faces. It would made it for me because I could talk to them. And the fact that I had a dialogue with the audience stopped it being in some sense a play right. uh, for me and uh, it gave it a bit more of an edge. It made it slightly different, maybe from other productions. Yeah. But the fact that I could come on and do two monologues over the course of the evening with uh, two very long monologues with an audience and to see them, I felt more at home with that. To, right. be, to be talking into some sort of void for me, uh, it, 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 it stopped me getting, uh, it, 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 it obstructed some of the subtext for me. It just, yeah. I just felt more alive doing it that way. 
and um, it, it was a hell of an experience. So that's really interesting. So I don't think I could have done that had I not had a go. Yeah. Now again, I never ever wanted to be a stand-up comedian, but I enjoyed the fact that I could still say. I'm performing tonight. Nobody yeah. had to ask me. I came along and said, do I have a slot? Yes, you do. Okay. You know, so that was fine. Um, well, then let's talk about leaving behind that stand-up. And is, was it the, your work as a stand-up that led to the Scrap Saturday work? Or is that coming from you as an actor or a bit of both? Um, I think a bit of both because um, I had some of the work I had done had a certain comic bent to it or slant to it at that time. Um, I had worked with, again, my friend Pierce McCoy on a thing called The Sunday Show where we did comic slots on topical stuff, satirical stuff, before Scraps Out. Right. And um, Jerry uh, Stanbridge and, and uh, Darren Morgan were the main instigators of Scraps Saturday, and I was asked to go along and play these characters, so it was fine. And it just went on from there, and the next thing we were getting, like, you know, huge ratings. Yeah. Uh, it became part of the Irish psyche, people were learning about the week's politics just by listening to the show. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so it was a staggeringly successful um, radio series um, and uh, went on for three years or something. But it, um, what happened was that uh, at the end of it, when Dermot took off and into Father Ted and, and everybody's the Pauline was going into Father, that they were going to sort of into different areas, the idea was to do one live one a year. We did one live show in um, Andrews Lane, which is gone now. Um, and the idea was to do one a year, looking back on the year, and uh, to make that a, invite the audience yeah. in. But as we know, sadly, Dermot died, and uh, that well, never happened. But yeah. um, it was a great part of my um, career, and I enjoyed every second of it, and I enjoyed, it also gave me a little uh, vent at the end of a week. If you read the papers and you go, do you know what I'd love to do with these <laughs> politicians? Do you know what I'd love to say? And you've got an opportunity to do it. Yeah. And only once were we threatened, uh, someone said they was going to sue us, only once. It was Donny Cassidy, uh, Senator, because he, he, we suggested that he wore a wig. And he, he threatened to sue us. Wow. And so not, unless we retracted it the following, which we did. Pauline went on and she said, we would like to make it clear that he does not wear a wig. It's his own hair. In fact, we've seen the receipt. <laughs> He never came back to do that. It's an old joke, but it was very handy at the time, and uh, so he never ever came back to us on it. So um, I'm sure, I'm sure it was all, all seen and good fun. I love it. I mean, but that was it was a strange thing in terms of radio because there's kind of occasionally there's must see TV where everybody mm. shuts down and, and you have to go and tune into it. And you think of Glen Rowe in the early days, but Scraps Saturday was the same. People would stop what they were doing to go and tune into it on the radio. That's right. It yeah. did huge. Just before podcasts, before people had any yeah. access, I listened again facilities. But I think we're a great nation for giving out. You know, we go to a pub and we give out and we go home and say, but we've sorted everything out. We know we haven't, but at least this was one place where we were saying what people felt. And uh, it was it was very incisive, and the you know all this stuff, stuff was quite short. You get in, you get a major point, you get out. You didn't hang around, make the same point over the course of four minutes. You yeah. get in, made it short. It was almost like uh, uh, it was kind of the Sesame Street mentality. It was all sort of thirty second commercials yeah. almost. You know, in that Charlie Hockey era, was it? Did it ever feel dangerous? Did you ever feel I'll never work in this town again, or somebody somewhere has the power to do yeah. something? No, not really. No, in fact, no. It was, it was actually again like it was like the days when I was doing stand-up. I, I was in my twenties, and then I was in my thirties doing scrap. It was more, more. It was more arrogant. I didn't care as much. I didn't wow. have children at the time. I yeah. have now, and I, so I was kind of a bit more. You know, you felt you, you had to be a little more dangerous. Okay. Which is good. Which is mm. good. And then, you know, it doesn't mean now I'm, you know, 
sitting back and saying, ah, will you stop? You know, I, I still feel that you bring an edge to whatever you do. But then in your 20s, 30s, you have that arrogance, you have that uh, sense of, um, I can do anything. I have, you know, have a long time to go before. I, you know, I don't have to worry about anybody. Yeah. And um, getting one over on me or being offended or anything like that. You couldn't. If, if you were doing it, probably it was a satirical program. We weren't there to moralize. We were there to just say the way things were. And did it come to a natural conclusion? Was there ever any shadows lurking in the background and, and political pressure to, to kill oh, us Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There were letters from all, all the different political parties saying, you didn't, uh, you know, we had a go at us last week and you never said nothing about that. <laughs> oh, Not that other party. Christ. And then you say, well, look, they, you screwed up. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Whoever screws up gets it in the neck. And that's the way it was with the show. And it was... It was quite uh, biting, and it was all, there was always a conscientious drive not to make it sort of safe or a bit of gas, a bit yeah. of crack, you know. None that was never a thing. And any time it did feel a bit uh, uh, like settled, the Jerry particularly would write something that was a little more dangerous, just to make people go be a bit incensed again. I mean, one of the things we had was a soap opera set in Wicklow called Twin Heads. Yes, <laughs> <coughs> so you work out what that was about, and it was. Uh, so that, that lasted two weeks. Right. I'm amazed we even got to the second week because the first one was so outrageous when we were doing it. I said, this is not, this is, they're not going to run with this. But they did for the one. And then the second week they went, wait a second. <laughs> Stop this. Um, so when we would record outside of RTE and the tape would win about six o'clock on a, on a Friday. Well, no, you wait for the six o'clock news and then see if anything had changed. Now okay. send the tape in and by 6.30, some poor man was there pacing the floor waiting for the tape to come in and they had to give it to the legal team and that kind of thing. Oh, Which was great fun, so it, was, it was great. I mean, it was, you know, it was like in a country where nobody likes to you know, say nothing, you know, mm. until you hear more. There was something being said, there was something, there was, there was something with a tooth in it, there was some, some anger being vented and, and that was a very healthy thing. Were Jerry and Dermot good to work with? Yeah. Yeah, they were. They were. You know, you know, we did. We, there was a good team there. Good team there. Excellent stuff. So then, talk to me about moving on from that. And uh, I mean, at that time, I guess at that stage, you were getting more and more established. But were there people around that you were looking up to? Were there hero of you, heroes of yours around the Dublin theatre scene at that time? Well, I, I was very lucky to work with uh, some. I mean, I started again like with the, the play that gave me. I can honestly say I haven't stopped working since I did a play called The Lament for Arthur Cleary, which was Dermot Bulger's first outing. And it came out of improvisation from a company that we'd formed called Wet Paint. And I had a series of characters in that, and it gave me a chance to show some range mm. in that. And then I got a, uh, more work. I started to work in the Abbey. They gave me parts in, in some plays in the Peacock with uh, uh, Marina Carr's The May, which is a great one. Yeah. Uh, um, I was working um, on Tom McIntyre's plays, which were a very different experience, but fantastic <laughs> too. Um, so, um, so a lot of Peacock work came through. And then I started going upstairs to the Abbey. I was I got a, one of the, probably the, the big milestone was playing John Proctor in The Crucible. Yeah. And the biggest, uh, yeah, it, was, it had been probably the biggest role I played on, on a large stage. And I was, what, in my late 20s, early 30s. And, and uh, I was actually in my early 30s, my first child was being born. Right. And uh, so that also felt that, 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 you know, Proctor being a family man in this, I felt, you know, when you're first time a family, it's like the, you're the first family man. Like when you've had your child, you're, nobody else has ever had children. Yes. And you feel like, this part suits me. But it was quite a, 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 a mountain to climb, and I, one thing I learned from that, and it might sound like, like obvious, that you don't do the whole play, or worry about doing the whole play in one night. 
when I used to think about, Jesus, what am I going to do? This yeah. is a big, you know, I'll get through this. You play it as the scenes occur, and then you look back and say, well, that was that. I did it. And I, yeah. I learned not to be scared of, of, of any big challenges like that. And so as a consequence, I've taken on plays that, you know, I, I'd, I'm, I've been very lucky. You know, some of the, the hardest plays I've done, like Copenhagen was a hell yeah. of an effort because you had to know your history, you had to know your physics, you had to know what quantum physics meant, even just for the time you're on stage. Yeah. Uh, Um, then you're doing something like Endgame which is terrifying Um, and you know even something like what I'm doing now playing Shelley Levine in in Glengarry Glen Ross where the language uh, when I read the script I thought who how am I going to learn this how am I going to learn this and you learn the musicality of it and if you have a love of language and I have a love of language you find the script does go in and the sense does come out and you do connect with the audience I was just worried that I would just end up singing Glengarry Glen Ross right which you can do and you can get away with doing, but it doesn't make for, for an evening's moving theatre, you know. Yeah. And um, so, but I've been very lucky, as I say, that once I had cut my teeth to, to a certain extent on, well, I say cut my teeth, my, the, the biggest challenge was the Proctor role. Yeah. And that I'd, I'd reached a watershed in my career. And after that, then uh, I, I felt, yes, I, I can carry these roles off. Yes, yeah. it was really satisfying. And, and is it a different challenge to? I mean, you, like you say, you don't try and play it all in one go. You go scene by scene. But yeah. do, is there still an added sense of of carrying the show? That I mean, if you are that central character, the leading man or whatever, is it a different? Brief? No, I never ever. I've never felt that, and I've always felt ensemble. I couldn't. I, as soon as I'm working with a star, and I've done it once or twice, the show is dead. It's over. Okay. If someone feels that they are, it's their show. I don't want to see it, and I don't want to be in it. And the great thing about this production of uh, Glengarry Glen Ross is that it's the, one of the best ensembles ever been yeah. in. Seven guys who nobody feels it's their show, and it's not, nobody's the star, we just play our parts, and it, it, you can't, you can't uh, not be part of a team on this play. If you try to do something different, it's over. And you know, and, and the whole thing about this play is we're passing the ball, nobody drops the ball. Even if you do it by accident, it scuppers you for about two minutes until mm-hmm. you, and you find your feedback. It's, it's, it's just a great play for that. And anything I've ever gone into, and I've, I've once, twice now, I've been asked about different members of the cast, and I say, well, are they team players? You know, yeah. And that's, for me, that's what theatre is about. I never go in saying that I'm holding and <laughs> carrying the show. You know, yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't begin to even think like that. And if I, if I did start to think like that, if I did say that, you know, when you're letting me down or something like that, um, I would, I would question um, my motives. Wow. I really would. I don't think it's the way to think. You don't carry a show. You play your part. That's right, just okay. the next man. And that's not just for effect. I mean that. Yeah, you know. that's really interesting. You spoke there about you know some of the roles that you've played, and it seems that you've worked with an awful lot of the absolutely finest Irish writers. You know, you talk about you know uh, Friel and Murphy and the Gili concert things that's like right, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, even the O'Casey stuff that we did together, play yes. and stuff. That's you know, right. uh, I mean. And you talk about your love of language. Mm. Um, talk to me about Irish writers and, and kind of the, that broad spectrum of, of what we have. Yes. Uh, what, 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 what do you like about Irish writing? Okay, I'll talk about uh, well, Tom Murphy. Like when I was doing Geely concert, um, there was a, a speech he had where the word and kept creeping up. And I kept going, and, then said line, and, dilemma. And now what we're very fortunate is that you know the writers like Tom and, and Brian Freeler are alive and they can be in the room. So so Tom gave me this line reading, which was like no, it's it's not just and it's a man trying to stop himself from crying. So it's and 
Wow. And so then you, simple things like that. Yeah. And when you get that, you go, Christ, that's, that, that's amazing. That is amazing writing. It looks like you know, the face of just, so you're saying the little speech and you want to say something else. And, and you've seen people do that. Yeah. So it's just that those that let that kind of observations that we get, that we understand he writes, that's him writing pain beautifully. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's one thing that we do understand <laughs> is pain. But, we, but also our humour. I mean, the humour that's in uh, O'Casey, mm-hmm. uh, where you, you know, it'll take more than that to flutter a feather a flutter. That uh, it's, it just doesn't, unless you have some sort of insight into the psyche, unless you have a sense of that period even, mm-hmm. like my grandparents talked like, the, I, like O'Casey write, wrote, yeah. or, you know, they talked like he wrote. And so I kind of understood the cadences and the rhythms, and I think if you try and do it naturalistically, it's, it's it doesn't work. Yeah. So you've got okay. See, so is a style, and you've got to play him, play that style in order for it to work. And I think um, that's why he's lasted. You know, so long as the, the younger generation coming up realise that there's a musicality to okay. See. Yeah. And, and indeed, to Hugh Leonard in Die, even when we did Die here. There was stuff that we did an English director, and he was taking some of this up quite literally, and he'd say, "No, no, no, actually, this is this is ironic, yeah. or this is just throwaway." Yeah. So, um, so hopefully, we won't lose those things that they will. Be. Well, talk to me then about about you know the next generation coming through. Is there a, a kind of a, a baton being passed with you know you say your grandparents spoke that way, so you mm. understand that you have it in you. When young whippersnappers like me come along into play when we we're doing it, does that then? Is there some kind of a, a memory down through generations of actors? Well, I know some. John Cavanagh has done a whole uh, re- sort of recordings of how people spoke about the, the Dublin dialect and all the rest right. of it. And I think uh, if people, if younger actors were to go and listen to those and, and actually heed them and feel that you're not doing the old thing, you're yeah. not doing the old way of anything, you know, you work within those parameters and within those parameters you be, be creative, but you must work within those parameters, I think, for it to work. I've seen Casey done in a naturalistic way and I you know, nod my leg off with boredom, <laughs> trying to stay awake or whatever. Because it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You, it's like opera. Yeah. It's, it's operatic. It's, again, like manners, like we're doing now. If, if you try and do that in some sort of naturalistic way, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a line in, in the play where I'm going, um, who was top man? A month, two months, eight months, 12 or three years in a row. You know, is that what? Is that some, some, some purloined lead? So... You know, is that some 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 politely? No, yeah, is that some 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 politely? Simple things like that, but it's intentional. And the way he writes in italics, you have to observe his italics in order to get it. To get it, like if he says bullshit, but then he'll have bull and then shit is an italic. You okay. go bullshit. <laughs> now this sounds like very sort of pretentious out of context, but in the context of the play, you go. It works beautifully. Yeah, the rhythms and, yeah. and the score of it almost. Yeah. And so not be too 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 full of yourself to say yeah. to ignore them. Yeah. You know, if you ignore them, you may you may be missing out on something. Yeah. Talk to me about your approach then when it comes to screen work. How how similar is it? How different is it? Because in terms of iconic film and TV in Ireland over the last twenty years, you look mm. at TV, Ballycus Angel. You look at yeah. movies, something like Intermission. Yeah. You're in both of them. So. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, Michael Collins as well was, was another one. But uh, the thing is that uh, Ballycus Angel was it was great fun because it was it was uh, television is easier, right? And so is film. Let's make no sort of. <laughs> That's a fact. Okay. Television and film and screen work is a lot easier, and they pay you more, right? Just there's no that. justice. There's no, there's no justice. 
theater you come in you have to make sure you eat on time you have to make sure that you're you know your 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 head is clear that you're not feeling anyway shaky or you got to psych yourself up and go on and you do that every night and you cannot you try not to make a mistake yeah so i mean so we know that's the, but the thing is that's the the, the the movies end of it they're a lot more fun uh, most of the time anyway and something like intermission um i was in we were touring with Endgame in America. We were going from Michigan right across to San Francisco. Wow. Right? So it was, it was Philadelphia, North Carolina. And it was, it was a long tour. And I was, I was uh, getting a cab back. I started to rain. I got a cab back. I tried to get a cab back from the center of, uh, uh, where was it? Ann Arbor to back to the hotel where we were. And I got into the cab and we got lost. And, um, and the taxi driver was quite aggressive. You know, I thought, you know, you know you just, I'll, I'll just shut up. I'm in a, well, a different town. I just... You know, I tried my conversation. I was just, mm, yeah, mm. and so we got stuck in traffic. And he says, "What are you doing here?" I says, "I'm acting. Actor. We've seen you in anything." And then I mentioned, but like I said, "No, no, no, no." So then I mentioned intermission, and he looked at me in the rearview mirror. And he goes, "You're that dude. You're that dude. You're that dude from that supermarket." So it's weird. And so it was actually that was a great feeling because the, well, the character in intermission, for some reason, don't ask me why people kind of uh, recognise him and, and remember him. Absolutely, and, and quote him at length yeah. to this day. Well, his, his catchphrase, like, was, as they say in the States, <laughs> he had this love of everything American. And I was like, so, you know, we need a little bit of, little bit of a TLC, as they say in the States. <laughs> so people, even barmen, loved, loved saying that to me on occasion. But that was a great feeling, to think that here you are stuck in the middle of nowhere in, in this, you know, vast country, and a taxi man recognised you. It's very nice. <laughs> A common thread between your time of Ballykay and intermission, Colin Farrell, was he knocking around Ballykay when you were there? Who? <laughs> oh yes, Colin Farrell. No, he was, yeah. He and, was. and in many respects, he would have reminded you of, of me, I suppose, in, in, in many ways. That's true, yeah. You owe me money as well. <laughs> no, he doesn't owe me money. You don't owe me money. But he was a very... No, Colin, he was, just, he, was, he was such an innocent on that. I mean, you just felt... And then he just turned around when he got Tigerland. Yeah. Straight away, oh, that was the, that was it. It was just she couldn't wish it, you know, to, you know, better luck on anybody. He was just a nice guy, yeah. And it was great to work with him, and uh, we just a lot of laughs. We never thought that it was going to go so, you know. And again with Kelly and Murphy on, on intermission, and yeah. then uh, when we did Breakfast on Pluto, yeah, I had to abuse him in both movies, <laughs> and I didn't do him any harm. Indeed, keeping his feet on the ground. <laughs> the, the whole machine around Bally Kay, was that a wonderful thing to be part of? Did you all become millionaires off the back of it? And uh, well, friends? I tell you, I mean, I, I did okay out of it. And it is the night, it was the 90s. I mean, the, to earn the same kind of money now on a TV series, I think you'd have to do about five different jobs to earn the same kind of money. And that's the way things were right. then. And they paid you well. And, I wasn't, and it was a bit like working in a postcard. That's the best way to describe it. Right. Because you're working in this beautiful scenery and it was all very Irish and, but not diddly idle Irish. It was actually nice Irish. And uh, uh, it was, um, you know, you were in little, little, some of the most beautiful scenery as backdrops. And it was really great fun. And at seven o'clock in the morning, there you were having your breakfast. And the, remember, the, remember we used to have sunshine? Yes, Do you remember, remember the old days. They That's were great right. times. So we'd have a, a nice sunny morning and uh, you know that the script was going to be, you know, those scripts were lovely, you know, really well written, yeah. good fun to do. And uh, it was a very happy time for me, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to talk to you then a bit about your time here at The Gate because it seems mm. that there has been an amazing run of work here in exceptional parts and exceptional shows. Yeah. What has that been like for you? And even just that consistency of the regular work and keeping those acting muscles toned, what does that do for you as a performer? Well, I mean, it has 
given me some, I mean, I've had a great time, some of the best roles I've ever had to play. I've been here in the last, say, five or six years. And um, what it does is that uh, each one has been a challenge. So I've never felt, I've never felt it gets easier. It doesn't get easier. I've never felt that, well, that's me now, you know? I, I mean, after I've done uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, there's nothing happening for another five months, maybe six months, where I'll be working on something. But I've been, I look back and I'm very thankful to the gate in a sense of, uh, I've played Vanya, I've played uh, Helga and Feston, uh, Ham in Endgame, Jesus. Uh, Da, uh, playing Shelley Levine, um, yeah, God, what else? I was very far. I worked on Catastrophe with another Beckett here, but um, I'm missing something that was Frank really Hardy as well. Frank, well, Jesus, Faith here, yeah, <laughs> which was like a two-year gig for me. I've been touring yeah. with that. So I mean, these were big parts. These were parts that you, you know, I was very lucky to get, and I never thought that. And each one, each one uh, was always a big, bigger challenge than the next. And I thought. You know, I just, my work is really cut out for me. You know, you thought you were good the last thing. You yeah. try and do it this one or whatever. You know, it's, so you're only as good as your last gig, obviously. But I, I have now kind of, uh, I look back on it, I, I can say that I was, I've been very lucky. Yeah. And I mean that, really lucky to get such a run of good parts yeah. and then such a major theatre, you know. And uh, um, you kind of wonder what next. Yeah. Now, I mean, I know the Abbey in next February, I'm lined up to play King, King Lear there. If I could say King Lear, yes, indeed, uh, King Lear, uh, King Lear, and um, so that is, as I say, is the mountain to climb, and I will, and when I get to the top of it, I'm going to sit down and just have a look around, yes. uh, for a bit and see what what next, because you know you just have to say to yourself, what do you do? Do you, do you know you, um, you you look for challenges, but when you've you know I've done Lear, what else? Yeah. <laughs> what do I do now? Well, I mean Shakespeare is something that I've seen you do. Pretty goddamn successfully over the years. I mean, look, think back on Titus and um, particularly Taming of the Shrew. Oh, that was great fun. That was wonderful. That, that was well. That was a real eye opener as well because you know we took Shakespeare's text. We didn't change a syllable, and we did it in an Irish dialect. And I mean a rural Irish dialect, and it gave it so much colour mm. that um, and we toured Ireland with that. And people who would never dream of going near Shakespeare were coming along and saying, "This is wonderful. Yeah. Now we're gonna." Have to see more or read more of this guy, but it was done. wasn't done in an irreverent way. It was being very true to the piece, but it was done in an Irish context set in the sixties, where something like an arranged marriage or a deal over land would have been quite acceptable yeah. in the sixties. So and and just the language, and especially remember Derek Kelly had a speech about describing the wedding of of, of Patricia and and Kate, and it could have been written by John B. Keane. <laughs> I mean that I, I, I can't remember I can't quote it but I do remember him saying and this could have been by, by John B. Keane or in fact the first reading we had uh, Lynn Parker who was directing it for Rough Magic had us read uh, okay I'm um, uh, sorry sing right. sing, sing plays and then she says okay now put it down now pick up your Shakespeare <laughs> wow. and, and, and do the same thing pretend it's the same play yeah. and it was just so funny and just it was such an eye opener that Shakespeare didn't have to be these sort of RP plummy tones, yeah. which has been the norm or the, the accepted way, that if you bring to it something that has such an integrity or, uh, or colour, the colour of it, the language just came leaping out at you. All the stuff that you feel you had to work yeah. in RP just happened because you were talking in this uh, rural dialect. 
and then of course there's arguments about oh well of course Shakespeare did sound like he sounded oh, like yeah, from Cork you know yeah. he, he talked about like people from Cork yeah Cork people would definitely <laughs> say that <laughs> and then some people say he's Cornwall or you know I don't know yeah. I, just, I just think he, he can be you know if you're truthful to us and yeah. uh, we were it really worked I'm, what might be a slightly uncomfortable question next okay <laughs> so bear with me on it I was talking to a couple of actors recently about the likes of Adon McCann or Ray McAnally and oh, I was yeah. asking at the time you know, when they're at the height of their powers, are, were they regarded as we now regard Adon McCann or uh, or Ray McAnally? And and if they felt that there were those kind of big theatrical figures now, and mm. we kind of went, well, there's only one name we could think of, and it was Owen Rowe. Really? Yeah. Um, were so they sober? <laughs> I just tend to drink. <laughs> of course they were. I mean, is, is that? Is that something, I mean, you, you know, obviously you know you are playing these big leading roles in the big theatres, mm. you're meant to take on Lear at the National, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do, do you ever see yourself as being in that kind of a position, or in your head are you still just a job and actor going from gig to gig? Of course I am. I don't know if I, was, if I thought I was, you know, what you just said. I, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't, if I couldn't begin, because I don't want to be afraid I might believe it. <laughs> That's what would terrify me, and if I did, then I'd become the greatest Yo, yo, to Even work. more, no, I couldn't. Yeah, I mean, when you're working, I was working with. I worked, did work with Donald. I never had the the, the, the good fortune to work with Ray, but my wife did. Right. And uh, she, I mean, he, they, these people did walk into a room. People stood up and shook their hands and said, yeah. "Hi, how are you?" You know. And uh, working with Donald, you know, you did. You were working with a, a legend of Irish yeah. theatre institution, and that's what you know. And I worked with him. It was it was uh, it was uh, quite intimidating. But then after a while, you know. He, he needs you as much as you need him, and yeah. he, was a, he was a lovely guy. Well, it's like you say, it's back to that teamwork thing that we're all in it together. Yeah, and if you work with outside of that, you know, it's, the show's dead, it's over, and, and you know, stop it. <laughs> well, like I said, I'm not going to say nice things to you. Um, so, look, exciting times ahead. Um, the, the Lear is going to be a, a massive challenge. Well, we see. I mean, yes, it will be. And I'm working with Selena Cartman again, which we did uh, the Titus Andronicus together, yeah. and Catastrophe, and we did Festin. Yeah. So uh, we still haven't learned our lesson. We're going to be working together again, <laughs> and uh, I think she has some great ideas for Lear, and uh, it's going to be quite quite an event. I hope, and yeah. she's some very very unusual thoughts about it that will give it an edge that won't be the Lear you've seen before. I hope, and uh, I don't. We don't know. We we'll just we'll, we'll do our best. You know, until it happens. And then after that. Wait, wait and see. I mean, ambition-wise, I mean, like, there's something I never was going to mention, never even did. Award-winning writer Owen Rowe, which not many, I don't know that many people know, but Alex Stewart Parker Awards. That's right, and everything. play back, for, was it, 19, geez, what, 92, for six women in the 30s, um, called Fear of Feathers. And it was a commission by this theatre company, as well, with paint. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know, I think it may have dated, um, because women's attitudes have changed. Sure. I just thought, I mean, we all know in the business that there's not that much work for when women reach a certain age in the business, yeah. they, they become someone's mother or, or, or someone's, you know, what a girlfriend or something. It's never, they're never written as individuals. And so the thing was that, uh, but not say that never, that's an absolute, yeah, I don't sure. mean that, but for the most part, they're very thin on the ground. So the idea was to write a play for six women in their thirties and try and make them as interesting and different. And uh, um, again, it was came from improvisation. So right, it was really right. the actresses who were always working with. 
to bring their stories and it was I just really pulled it together and gave it some sort of shape so I wouldn't claim complete authorship for but it. But might you go back to a bit of writing? Is that something that's still there for you burning in the background or are you happy doing I'd love to no I'd love to. I mean I don't know I haven't done it in so long, you know you know if you don't use it you lose it and I haven't done it in so long. I've a whole I've I've lots of notebooks full of ideas. Right. But I, I'll wait till what? Till uh, they no longer want me to act, and then I'll sit down and I'll write something for children. Excellent. <laughs> I look forward to reading it. Oh, and I have to say, thank you so much for your time today. Oh. That's an absolute privilege just to hang out with you. My pleasure. Thank you. Else, well, but, uh, yeah. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks, Andy. You're down off my knee now. I have a show to do. Well, there it is, the amazing Owen Rowe. Such an honour and a privilege to have him on the podcast here. Just one of my all-time favourite actors, both as a guy I like to go and buy tickets to go and see, uh, to work with on stage and on screen as we have, uh, and also just a guy to be around. Such an entertaining guy, such a funny guy, uh, and such an interesting man. I just, I, I love him to bits. I, I would watch him read the phone book. He is such an incredible performer. Uh, an absolute honour and a privilege to get to hang out with the guy again. Such, such a great day. I love him to bits. He is wonderful, as you hear me say on the podcast, week in, week out. So, look, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the country. Uh, in Dublin, Theatre Upstairs, Carl Shields' new venture has Perfidia by Jimmy Murphy um, with the brilliant Una Kavanagh. That will be followed by WAG next week. Uh, and just as a heads up on that, it is already booking very, very quickly. Quite a number of those performances have sold out in advance already, so there won't be seats uh, for people rocking up on the door for some of those performances. So if you are intending on popping along, do book in advance. Um, at Project Arts Centre, that's about the size of it is there again featuring Una Kavanagh um, her, her show there uh, which is obviously very topical at the moment with the whole Higgs boson thing going on at the Viking Theatre in Clontarf they have 47 Roses with Peter Sheridan backed by popular demand The Gate is continuing with Glen Gary Glen Ross which is just about to wrap up and that will be followed by A Woman of No Importance featuring the brilliant Cathy Belton who I'm hanging out with at the moment on the house and the wonderful Avian Garrahy as well who's a good mate of mine who I worked with a couple of years ago uh, delighted to see her going into The Gate as well um, Bewley's Cafe Theatre has The Candidate by Gina Moxley starring Frances Healy and I also got a chance to see that this week um, I, look Frances Healy is someone I've been in love with for 14 years to get to spend an hour in her presence just an absolute treat that is one you have to go and catch I think there's another week of that running there at the moment do please go and check that out if you can at all that will be followed up in Bewley's in their lunchtime slot by Pocket Music with Donoco D and Camille Ross which is one of the show in a bag shows from the year after we made Fight Night I think it won the Bewley's Little Gem Award which we had won um, so of course that's written by Gavin Caustic with music from the great Dennis Clausey so that's definitely worth checking out um, The Dubliner's Dilemma is at the New City Arts on Bachelor's Walk with Declan Gorman in that lunchtime slot down there there's an awful lot of great lunchtime theatre around at the moment um, The 10 Days in Dublin Festival is continuing with great shows like Future is Blank and Sluts is on at the New Theatre all the information on those are is at 10daysindublin.ie um, also as part of that festival Smock Alley has heroin for breakfast uh, and also they have their new production of Playboy of the Western World kicking off there at Smock Alley. Um, at the new theatre in Temple Bar uh, they have Griswold which is back uh, after a recent run um, that's starring the brilliant Shane Gately that is back by popular demand so definitely go and check that out if you get the opportunity and of course the final few performances at the Abbey Theatre of the great Tom Murphy's The House. Um, at this stage uh, there may not actually be any tickets left or uh, if there are there are certainly only a handful so if you'd like to come and see what all the hype was about what I've been banging on about for the last couple of months what the reviewers have been saying about it, um, get down quickly 
there's only a few tickets left we'd love to have you uh, send us out on a high as we look around the country the brilliant devious theatre are getting very close to kicking off with Night of the Living Dead I have my tickets booked and I can't wait to get down there uh, don't forget Kilkenny is only about an hour and 15 down the road from Dublin and that will be certainly worth checking out young exciting innovative theatre companies making work outside of Dublin definitely worth supporting if at all you can as we look down south to Rebel County in Cork the girl who forgot to sing badly is at the Everyman um, and over west the Galway Arts Festival is kicking off with all worlds of awesome over there all the information you need on that will be at galwayartsfestival.com there's going to be so much there to choose from go out have a great time and then looking north to the Lyric Theatre about to kick off up there is Molly Wobbly's Tit Factory and uh, what a title Jesus if that doesn't pique your interest I don't know what will as that's what's going on up at the Lyric at the moment and that pretty much wraps up our rundown of what is going on so that is us that is episode 36 in the books wow what a big one that one was we will be back of course next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Og McAnally I'm Angus Og McAnally we'll see you next week Welcome to a new segment of the podcast this week with me, your host, Andy McAnally. My brother, Angus, tries to make me go to the theatre all the time and tries to make me listen to his podcasts. But I don't have a huge interest in the theatre and sometimes I find it a little bit hard unless it's, you know, one of the banker shows that I go and see, the, you know, Grease or, you know, the Play on the Stars, the, the big hitters. So... To get me interested in the podcast, he, he sat me down and tried to make me listen to them, but I just wasn't interested. So I found some reoccurring themes, and I devised a concept that really helped me to get, uh, get through the podcasts. So here we go. You are now entering the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast drinking game. Rule one. Every time Angus says, amazing... Drink one finger of drink. Every time Angus says, wonderful, drink two fingers of your drink. If Angus says, phenomenal, have three fingers of your drink. If Angus says, super or superstar, you have to drink four fingers worth of drink. If Angus says, Peter Daly, you need to punch the person to your left. If Angus says, third generation actor, you need to punch Angus in the face and drink everything that's left in your glass. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Andy McAnally. <laughs>